Okay, so you have already seen the title of this episode, and you are probably pretty excited. Listeners, it's a Gossip Girl day. This series needs little in the way of introduction, so I'll stick to a few key points. The first book in the Gossip Girl series, which was written by Cecily von Zygesar and called Gossip Girl, was published in 2002. We discussed that book on episode 86. I'll be sure to link to that episode in the show notes for this one if you want to check it out. On today's episode, though, we turn our focus to book two in the series, You Know You Love Me. If you're a fan of the CW's TV adaptation of the books, you already know how important that title turned out to be. The book was published just a few months after book one and continues the dramatic saga of a group of teenagers growing up on the oh-so-exclusive Upper East Side of Manhattan. There's Blair's mom's upcoming wedding to Cyrus, which Blair is not excited about. There's more awkwardness between Dan and Serena. There's a love triangle between Nate, Blair, and Jenny. There's simmering tension between ex-besties Blair and Serena. And, of course, there are the all-important college interviews. On episode 109 of SSR, my guests and I cover a lot of Gossip Girl ground. We discuss elements of the book that would probably not find their place in YA publishing today. Mentions of chain smoking, homophobia, and blatant body shaming, to name a few. We consider the responsibility that authors have to write healthy role models for teens, and the lack of diversity and representation in this series. We dig deep into the relationships between Nate and Blair and Serena and Dan. Is Nate, in fact, the worst boyfriend of all time? Dan, sweet or stalkerish? And why is it so important to all of the characters for Blair to chill out when her ambitions are actually pretty impressive? I'll note a trigger warning for this episode as well, listeners. My guests and I spend some time talking about the disturbingly cavalier depiction of Blair's serious eating disorder in You Know You Love Me. Please be aware of that if this is a sensitive subject for you. Please also be aware that you are probably going to hear a little bit from my golden retriever Irving on this episode. There were repairs being made in our apartment the day I recorded the interview, and he was in the room with me. And, well, who knew that the jingling of a collar or the chewing of a bone could be so loud? He's really cute, though, so I hope you can cut him and me some slack. Today's guest has quite a history with, and an expertise in, all things Gossip Girl. You'll hear all the details about that in a few minutes, but let's start with a more basic introduction. Hannah Orenstein is the author of Head Over Heels, a rom-com set in the world of Olympic gymnastics as well as playing with matches and love at first like. She's also the senior dating editor at Elite Daily and was previously the youngest matchmaker at the country's largest dating service. You can follow Hannah on Instagram and Twitter at Hannah Orens. You can follow SSR on Instagram and Twitter at SSRPod. If you're into Facebook, we're there too. Search the SSR podcast for the basic podcast page or the SSR podcast community for more of a discussion group where I reveal sneak peeks of upcoming episodes, share cool resources about the books we talk about on the show, and ask you questions about the subjects I've been chatting about with my guests. This community is growing, and I would absolutely love to have you join. While you're over on social media anyway, you might as well take a second to use your accounts to spread the SSR love. You know what I'm talking about, right? Like when you see the people you follow post a screenshot of the podcast episodes you're listening to on their Instagram story and tagging that podcast so you can check it out easily too? You might be sick of me asking you to do this, but it really does help me get the word out about SSR. I mean, we're all spending a ton of time on social media anyway. If half of you post about the podcast to your social media and even one or two of your followers checks out the show or our community, imagine how many awesome new book lovers will be part of our extended family. Five-star ratings and reviews on iTunes can also help grow our extended family. Leaving one of these is super fast and simple. If you have any questions about how to do it, feel free to DM me on Instagram or to send me an email. And if you've already left a rating or review, let me take a moment to say thank you. 
Reading what you have to say about the show helps keep me motivated and excited about creating new content for SSR. I know we all have busy lives, so the fact that you take even a few seconds out of your day to rate or review the show means a ton. It also means a ton to me that there are so many Patreon sponsors out there listening to this episode. Thank you so much, patrons. If you're not a patron and you have no idea what I'm talking about, here is the simplest way to explain it. Patreon is a platform that gives you the chance to support independent creators you love with just a few dollars every month. I am an independent creator, this is an independent podcast, and my patrons can contribute as little as $1 every month to the production of the show. The best part? You get exclusive rewards in return. Depending on how much you contribute every month, you get awesome stuff like bonus episodes, newsletters, SSR swag, input on book selection, and more. Visit www.ssrpodcast.com and click support at the top of the page, or go to www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast for all the details. I don't know about you, but after this very bizarre summer, I am so ready to get into some new fall routines. Something about this time of year just always makes you want to pick up some new habits and learn new things. I guess it's the old teacher's pet in me. I found that audiobooks are a fantastic way to learn new things, even as an adult, and I only get audiobooks from Libro.fm. Libro.fm is a platform that makes it possible for you to support independent bookstores with the purchase of the same audiobooks that you can get from bigger companies. I'm not going to name names. The audiobooks are the same price, too. You can support any indie you want if they're partnered with Libro.fm, so choose a local favorite or send some love to a store you've dreamed of visiting for years but have never gotten to. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and use code SSRPOD when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Okay, Upper East Siders, XOXO, let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Hannah. Welcome to SSR. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a fun day when I get to talk about Gossip Girl. Listeners, I'm going to do a quick disclaimer. If you hear any panting, it's because Irv is in the room with me. You all know and love Irv. Sometimes he's closer to me than others when I'm recording the show. And so we're just going to have to love him through this if we can hear him. Hopefully he will behave himself, but he's just an enthusiastic co-host with me today. So thank you in advance for understanding if he's here. But Hannah... Let's focus on Gossip Girl. I have to say that I usually am doing like hours and hours and hours of research on these books before I chat with my guests about them. And I did do research about this book. But I also happen to know that you are a big fan of Gossip Girl. You have quite a history with this series. So I sort of feel like we're like, we're kind of almost leveling out in in the number of hours that you've put into like watching and thinking about the show. It feels like it takes like a little bit of pressure off of me. So I'm like thrilled to have you for many other reasons, but that's one of them. Well, thank you. I guess I sort of moonlight as a Gossip Girl expert. So I feel really honored to be here because (laughs) revisiting the books was a trip. So this was so much fun. And I just, I have a lot of thoughts. Let's just 
put it that way. So many thoughts. Before we get into all of our thoughts, do you want to share a little bit about your history with the series? So you sort of like casually sent this email to me this morning with like, oh, these are just a couple of connections that I have to the series. And it turns out you have like deep roots with Gossip Girl. So if you wouldn't mind, I'd love for you to enlighten our listeners a little bit. Sure. And thank you for being so casual about that unhinged email that I sent you. (laughs) No, I loved it. I love an unhinged email in the morning. It's like the best way to start the day. Perfect. Great. So I started reading the Gossip Girl books in middle school. I watched the Gossip Girl TV show in high school, obviously just loved it, was a big fan. There was definitely a rumor going around my summer camp that the most popular girl, whose name was Allie, A-L-L-I, spelled just like yours, Twins. twins, was the daughter of Cecily von Zygsgar, which is like an outrageous rumor and it's definitely not true and she's definitely not related but I loved that this rumor existed and then after college when I was looking for a job I was freelancing a little bit I pitched this essay to 17 saying basically like I based my life on Gossip Girl and here's what happened and I didn't really base my life on Gossip Girl but you know I went to NYU like a lot of the characters in the series I loved Blair I used to try to dress just like Blair I went to a lot of the same spots like restaurants and different places that they would go and I'm not like the snotty child of a billionaire. So like there's that also, but that went viral and the Daily Mail picked it up and made fun of me and it landed me a job at 17 because they were like, damn, like you just went viral without even trying. Um, (laughs) I will take that job. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, And then after about two and a half years at 17, I left and my last story was dressing as Blair for a week. And so I called in all these headbands. I got the white Mark by Bark Jacobs dress from the white party. And it was super fun. And ever since then, my DMs have just been flooded with messages from girls around the world, usually like 14-year-old girls in Croatia who were like, oh my God, you're the real Blair Waldorf. But I'm not. It was it was a fun piece for sure. I feel like you're a Blair Waldorf historian. That's a huge honor. Thank you. I mean, I'm just going to have you be my Blair Waldorf correspondent if you'll have that honor. Like anytime I happen to have a Blair mention on the podcast, which I promise it's not that often, but I'll just be like, I'm now going to kick it over to our Blair Waldorf correspondent and Hannah will somehow beam into the podcast and share with us her expertise. I'm so honored. I I should have a headband on. I don't have one right now, but next time I promise. It's okay. They hurt your head. So I, I understand it's a commitment to wear a headband. Yeah. So when I was reading your pieces about Gossip Girl, I had this, I would say this parallel in my mind about, okay, so you're a couple years younger than me, but I think that I felt about the OC, the way that you felt about Gossip Girl, I just connected a lot to sort of the way you talked about the characters and how you didn't necessarily like want to be them from like a moral perspective, but like saw their relationships and saw their commitment and loyalty to each other in a particular way that like you sort of just wanted for yourself in your own more laid back life. And that's how I felt about the OC. I wanted to be Marissa Cooper so badly, even when things turned really dark for her. Uh, I stood by her side. I wanted to look like her. I wanted to dress like her. I wanted to have a friend like Summer. And I just wanted to have just this exciting life, which I so didn't have. So I definitely connected and resonated with a lot of your thoughts on Blair and my own obsession with the OC, which again, I think the ages probably matched up because I'm a few years older than you. But I did want to, I wanted to share one 
online from, I believe, your second 17 piece because I think it's a great way to segue into this conversation. And it reflects a little bit of what we talked about in the first Gossip Girl episode that we did on the show, which I'll link to in the show notes. But the the paragraph says, I can't deny that the characters were catty, conniving, and intensely superficial, but they were also fiercely loyal friends, the kind that treat their social circle like family. They were smart, witty, and never struggled to find the perfect zinging comeback. They set ambitious goals and worked hard to achieve them. And yes, they lived utterly glamorous lives in the most incredible city on the planet. Gossip Girl gave me a path to follow when I was 15, feeling majorly lost about who I was and who I wanted to become, and I won't ever apologize for that. And I'm sorry for reading your own words aloud to you because I know that that's, as a writer, I know how cringy that can feel. But I, I just loved the way that you sort of encapsulated how I feel about these characters because in the first Gossip Girl episode, we talked about how as an adult, like it's sort of hard to read these characters and still love them because they are catty and they are conniving and they are superficial. But I think what you point out about like the quality of their relationships is a good reminder of what we all loved about these characters and what we still can love, even if we can also admit that they have a lot of flaws. Yeah, definitely. I think I related a lot more to, not related to, but liked a lot more the characters on the TV show. And I found when I was reading the book this week, I was like, I don't like any of these people. And it felt like a much different experience to me. I think partly because I'm just older and I I recognize that a lot of these relationships aren't really that healthy, but yeah, they didn't feel as romantic to me anymore. Like they didn't feel as, as aspirational in a way. I mean, it's just one book. It's not the whole series, but I, I felt a lot differently reading it this week than I did, I don't know, 15 years ago. Yeah, and I've now read the first book in the series. I read that, I want to say, three or four months ago, and then I read this second book in the series, You Know You Love Me, over this past week. And so I can say that, at least with those two books combined, I had a similar reaction. Um, I've binged the series a couple of times since it came out, and I do find the characters, as imagined on screen, to be a lot more human, and they're more nuanced, and they're more complicated, which I really appreciate. And I think it's easy to connect with each of them, even when their counterparts in the book are just like so hard to relate to. And they all just have these more elaborate backstories that I think just it grounds them in a world that like feels so lacking and grounding. Yeah, definitely. I definitely felt that way. I also found it a little hard to focus on what was going on in the book with just the anachronisms or the things that we would never publish in 2020. Like in every scene, they are chain smoking cigarettes indoors. I realized that this was published the year before New York bands smoking indoors, which I mean, I've never walked around a city like that. So I was really surprised by that. I was really surprised by just the blatant homophobia, the really blatant body shaming. And that just made it a much more uncomfortable read for me. And I'm sure, I mean, all of that existed when the books first came out and definitely existed when the TV show came out. But I think it's just a huge sign of like how far society has come. And I say this like from a huge place of privilege that I didn't clock that, you know, when I first read it, first watched it. Yeah, I noted all of those elements as well. I'll start with the smoking thing. And I, I think we talked about this briefly in the first Gossip Girl episode of the podcast. But I think, yes, smoking has since been banned indoors. But I also think we wouldn't see a mention of all of these teens smoking anywhere now. I do think that as crazy and problematic as it is, there were many years where smoking was sort of this sign of like coolness. And in this case, it was also a sign of wealth. Like I'm so cool that like, and so rich that I can buy all these cigarettes. And that's thankfully not the message that the vast majority of creators are trying to send to teens now. There's much less glamor, I think, associated with smoking cigarettes. 
And I, I clocked that because you're right. It just seemed like endless mentions of smoking inside, outside, like in school, it seemed. I was like, are they really smoking around the clock? I guess. I mean, it seems that way. And the way that Blair's eating disorder was written, I thought was just really upsetting. I struggled with eating when I was in high school. And I definitely remember thinking like, oh, it's not that bad because Blair does it too. That's a really weird way to justify it. But it just reminded me reading it now, like these writers come from, they just have such an enormous responsibility to write healthy role models for kids. I was really shocked by that as well, and I was shocked by it reading the first book. But in this book, I felt like it was even more cavalier the way that the author talked about it. I, too, struggled with disordered eating throughout high school and college. Um, it's still something that I struggle with, and it sounds crazy, but I wasn't really aware that I was dealing with it when I was in high school and college. I thought that everything was kind of fine and normal, and I, I wonder now if part of my lack of ability to notice my own weird behaviors or unhealthy behaviors came from the fact that like I read characters like Blair and I'm not here to blame Gossip Girl for my issues because that's not fair. It's just not true. It's not real. But I do think that at this time, there just wasn't enough attention being called to the wide range of eating disorders and disordered eating that people can experience. So we didn't know to be looking for it. And again, I I think that just the casual nature of all of the mentions. It comes up a lot in this book. I believe it comes up more in this book than it did in the first book. And the way that it's discussed, like there are a couple scenes where Blair is like, oh, it's okay if I eat more. Like I can just throw it up anyway. It's no big deal. And the fact that the people around her know that she does it, like all of her friends are like, oh, there's Blair. She's going to the bathroom again. It seems like her parents might even know what's going on. And it was really disturbing just the language around it. I noticed that tone even more in this book. Yeah, it was really flippant and it was really casual. And the TV show, I think, does a better job. I definitely remember them showing Serena supporting her and trying to get her help. But yeah, the, t- the books just really are like, oh yeah, there's Blair again. Right, like there she is in the bathroom again. It's like Nate actually seems to be sort of rolling his eyes at her. And again, like you guys are supposed to be in this intense devoted relationship even though things go a little sideways for you about halfway through the book and you're a terrible boyfriend like if you know that this is happening shouldn't you be checking in with her oh totally yeah and I think I realized this like every single character almost except for maybe Nate is body shamed by the narrator including Serena and they spend half the book talking about how beautiful she is but they still call her hippie at the wedding in her dress I know. What was the hippie thing? Just gross. It made me feel so bad reading this. And I'm an adult woman who feels good about herself. And I was like, if I feel this bad reading it, I can't imagine. I mean, I can't imagine because I did read it when I was 12. But yeah, and they it's just gross. But I also want to talk about Nate because their relationship drove me nuts while reading this. I really I mean, he's the worst boyfriend of all time. Of at least the century, if not all time. He is terrible. Okay, so let's talk about Nate. When we start the book, we've kind of picked up right where the first book leaves off after Blair's foiled attempt to lose her virginity to Nate, which is another narrative that blows my mind just in terms of like the way that it's romanticized, which was so not my experience um, or really the experience of like any of my friends. So she is like raring to figure out how to actually lose her virginity. She's like, okay, we we didn't make it happen the first time, but like, I can do this again. We super awkwardly discussed the fact that he slept with my best friend, but like, I can get over that and we're gonna have sex and I'm gonna wear Manol Blahniks and it's cool. But he, he's just the worst boyfriend. So let's talk about Nate and Blair and how all of this plays out. So I don't even know where to begin because it's all so messy. What was your first 
red flag. I mean, there were many. There were many. I think the first thing that was really jarring to me was right before they attempt to have sex, they go out for dinner with Blair's father and the dad is pouring her champagne and she's like, this is making me so horny for Nate. And she's just making weird jokes about her dad. It's just, it's creepy. The dad gives her kitten heels from Manola Blahnik and she wants to wear only the shoes during sex. And I don't know if it's just because kitten heels feel very like 2006 to me, but the fact that like that was the sex symbol of the book, like right. the kitten, I loved it. Love and a kitten heel in 2002. <laughs> Love it. I remember reading actually that scene where Blair and Nate try to have sex, but then they get interrupted by her mom years ago. And I thought it was really sexy. I was like, this is adult. This is a big deal. Dangerous. <laughs> and reading it now. Oh my God. I mean, I just, I wanted to like scoop her up and just bring her far away from Nate because he clearly just doesn't care about her at all. Like he puts her down the entire time. She doesn't notice. Or if she does, she's like, I just have to work harder to make him love me. Whereas she should just say, this isn't working. I'm going to go find somebody else who actually does care about me. Yeah. I mean, listeners know, and, and new listeners, I'll let you know that I, um, I tend to be a Serena girl. I always aspired to be Serena. And I was such a Blair when I was in high school. I was very much of a perfectionist, still am. But I think that I think that I've become a bit more of a Serena just in terms of my worldview. So generally... I I tend to feel like Blair is the villain, which I know is controversial. But in this book, I really felt so much empathy for Blair, particularly in her relationship with Nate, because I just wanted to sit her down and be like, first of all, like let me just explain to you that this whole experience of losing your virginity, it doesn't need to be on you. Like she was taking on so much of the pressure and so much of the responsibility to make this a certain kind of experience. And it wasn't her job. He certainly could not have given fewer fucks about how the whole thing transpired. And the fact that she was taking all of that on, it just felt exhausting to me. And I could sort of relate, not necessarily in the sense of wanting to have my first time having sex be so perfect, but I just think that as a teen, especially, I was always trying to engineer these like super romantic experiences. Blair really envisions everything like a movie, which wasn't necessarily the way I moved through the world when I was a teen, but I think that says a lot about her. Like she's just always working her life into this cinematic context. And when it came to her relationship with Nate, I just felt like she had to do all of the emotional labor. You know, I think there's always an extent in media and pop culture for creators to sort of be like, oh, like this this guy or this girl is just a teen. So like you can't expect them to step up. But it was so out of balance in this book. And of course, all of the emotional labor is falling on on the young woman and not on the young man, which is such a dangerous precedent to set. And I also think just promotes this really unbalanced narrative about sex in heterosexual relationships. Yeah, definitely. I definitely related to the pressure that she's putting herself under to make everything perfect. And I was really grossed out by Nate's inner dialogue thinking like, I like Jenny better than Blair because Blair wants to plan and Blair nags and Blair puts all this pressure on me. And I just want to talk to somebody who's easy and not complicated at all. And that made me really sad for Blair because she isn't trying to engineer this just to bother him. She's trying to engineer this because she cares about him and loves him and wants this to be special. So my heart just broke for her in that scene. And the virginity plot kept coming up like throughout the whole book. She keeps trying to craft these really elaborate scenarios. And what did you think of the second one, her second plan at the end to lose her virginity after the wedding? Her mom's wedding on her birthday. On uh, the day. 
Nate was trying to avoid her so he didn't have to break up with her to her face, which is just mind-blowing to say that all out loud. It was such a train wreck, the whole thing. Again, I tend to I tend to be suspicious of Blair, um, especially on the show. Like, I, I don't entirely know where that comes from, but my many years of consuming multiple types of media in Gossip Girl have just made me suspicious of Blair. And I'm definitely a Serena apologist. So, and I don't know why it has to be so binary, but for some reason in my head, I'm like, if I'm going to be a Serena apologist, then I have to be nervous about Blair. So my first reaction when she was like, I'm going to use my mom's wedding suite to lose my virginity to my terrible boyfriend. I was like, first of all, you can do better. But second of all, this is not about you. Like I, the first thought that she had when her mom started talking about plans for the wedding was great. I'll just use that room to have sex with Nate, partially because she's resentful of her mom, I think for like barging in on their earlier attempt to have sex, which I, you know, I I get that you're a teen, you're mad. But then as all of the pieces of plan fell into place and then proceeded to fall out of place so terribly, I, I really just felt for her because again, like I remember the feeling of trying to make everything perfect when I was in high school. And I also just remember the pressure of like thinking about what it was supposed to look like and feel like when you had sex for the first time. And she really wanted to be special. And she's now like gotten herself dressed up. She's now put on these heels. She's now like perfectly like quaffed her whole body multiple times just for him to totally screw her over and ignore her in favor of this girl that he barely knows who he's been seeing behind Blair's back. I mean, just the fact that Nate has been hanging out with Jenny for most of the book and has not once mentioned Blair, it's so it's so upsetting. And I think this is where the book series is so different than the TV show because in the world of the TV show, everybody knows everyone and the world feels much smaller. Whereas in the book, Jenny doesn't know about Blair. Jenny doesn't have on her radar the fact that Nate and Blair are the hottest couple. And that for me was a little jarring because I'm so used to the TV show. And so when I was reading the book, I had to keep reminding myself like, no, Jenny doesn't know. Like Jenny doesn't know that Nate's cheating on Blair with her and then of course it all comes to a head at the end of the book when Nate blows off the whole wedding just to hang out with Jenny in the hotel lobby it was a mess it was, it was mess. just a train wreck yeah I just I feel for Blair I, I am definitely a Blair girl but I think you know we are so socialized to be like team Blair team Serena totally. or you know in the time that this was coming out like team Jen team Angelina but yeah I mean now looking back like I didn't like Serena at all when I was reading the books or watching the show just because she felt Like she got everything so easily. And I definitely related more to Blair feeling like she had to work for what she got. Not in the sense of like actually putting in work, like to get into college or anything like that, but in the sense that like she would try to go after Nate and then that would blow up in her face. And that's something that I felt like I understood. And it just still happens. I don't know. Do you ever watch Love Island, the British reality show? I watched one episode, but I was on a plane and I was like, I can't watch this on a plane. (laughs) (laughs) You can't watch it on a plane. It's pretty explicit, but I'm a huge Love Island fan and every season without fail there's always the golden boy he's like tan with like golden blonde hair and blue eyes and all of these girls put in all this effort to romance him and be cute and flirty and primp for him and he just does not care and he always goes off with some other random girl who isn't trying at all and to me that's just such the classic Blair Nate Serena love triangle or I guess Jenny also but that happens later in the series with Serena as well yeah well and I felt for Jenny in this situation too because Nate's playing the same game with Jenny as he probably played with Blair early in their relationship I mean we're meant to believe that Blair and Nate have this long connection they've maybe been together for a couple of years but I have to believe that 
Nate probably like laid it on pretty thick with Blair early on too. And who knows what he was doing, you know, in seven or eighth grade, like <laughs> dating around with other girls. I don't put it past him. And spending this time with Nate and being made to feel so special is such like a milestone for Jenny. She's in ninth grade in this book. She's really struggling to figure out who she is. She feels really out of place in her school. She is super insecure. She's going through puberty in a way that's much different than her friends and just feels like uncomfortable in her body like it's just a hard time and to be noticed by this good-looking guy who doesn't really seem to be asking for much from her but just to like be there for him it's a huge deal even to be kissed by him for the first time like she hasn't had a lot of kisses I think this may have been either her first kiss or like one of the first ones it was definitely the first one that seemed to mean something to her and for him it was nothing and I related to that because I didn't have my first kiss until I was 16, which is old, I think, for the average American teen, Um, or at least I've been led to believe that by like TV shows and movies. But I remember that when I finally did start kissing boys as a 16-year-old, for me, it was like such a big and terrifying undertaking. But in hindsight, I'm like, I know that those boys had kissed other people before. And to them, it was probably nothing but for me I was like oh my gosh this is the moment and that's how Jenny felt yeah and I think she worships Serena and this is like an entrance into her world like their friends Serena and Nate she feels like by getting the guy she's getting into that entire world that she just wants to be a part of so badly can we also talk about the age difference between Jenny and Nate actually all of the age differences in the book yeah because Jenny is a high school freshman and Nate is a high school senior yeah and this is pointed out to Nate and he's like it's not a big deal And then also Vanessa, who I think is a senior, is dating a guy who's 22, which is completely gross. Yeah. And the narrator of the book makes a joke about Woody Allen and Sunni. And that's not it's not even pointed out that like any of these relationships are bad. They were just like, oh, just don't be like Woody Allen. Right. There's no thought to like what the consent or lack thereof looked like in those relationships or the different appropriate or inappropriate levels of those relationships. It's just sort of mentioned like, oh, that had an age difference too. And like, you can't, it's, it's apples and oranges or it should be because I sure hope that like the relationships that we're portraying in the book are healthier and consensual and happy and healthy. So it's like, it just doesn't, it's not even, it's not even a good comparison. And now of course, like, I don't, I don't think any author would touch a Woody Allen comparison with a 10 foot pole in a YA book. Sure. No, not at all. You just put it. And I wish that there was more in the book about, I mean, I guess there is a lot of stuff in the book about how Jenny feels like her experience doesn't measure up to Nate's, but that's reflected on her as like an insecurity that's not like a problem with age gap relationships. Yeah. And I think what's really hard is just the power dynamics. That's really tough to read as an adult because there's no sense from the narrator or from the author that what Nate is doing is wrong. And I think that we're made to believe all the way through the book that like Nate is this golden boy. And and I remember reading this as a kid and putting myself in Jenny's shoes and being like, oh, it would be so dreamy if this happened to me. And I had no sense that like he's he's cheating on his girlfriend, on his serious girlfriend, and that's a problem. And I remember feeling like anytime Nate did anything right with any one of these single female characters, that he was like the best. I never was really, I don't think I was ever like given the framework to think about what he was doing with all the other characters behind said leading ladies back. And and maybe that was a me thing and, and I was naive to like not really think about all of those complicated dynamics. But I do think that there's like a tonal issue in the book 
where like Nate always has the power and that's always okay. And he always gets to be idolized by whichever female character he happens to be with at the time. Yeah, definitely. He has agency and the others don't because they're in the dark. Right. There's a character in my first book, Playing With Matches, who is Nate-like in some ways, and he's also cheating. And one of the most satisfying things to write in that book was the moment where he gets his comeuppance and he realizes that the girl is turning against him because he messed up. And it would have been really great to see something similar in this book, you know, to have Jenny have her moment where she gets to put Nate in his place and say, like, look, you really messed up. Or to have Blair say the same thing. That would have been cool. Yeah, he doesn't learn anything. And I know that there's such a debate about whether or not YA books have to be moralistic and, like, do we have to learn something? And I, I personally think that that debate is silly because I think that there's room to have all kinds of books. And I think there's room to have Gossip Girls. And I think there's room to have books that maybe share more life lessons. But it is striking to me in 2020 that there is no comeuppance for Nate. There's no, there's not even like a glimmer of a moral here or there's there's not even a character really that says to him like, are you sure this is a good idea? He doesn't have any moment of questioning what he's doing. And that was surprising to me all these years later. That's interesting. Yeah, I don't know, maybe book three, but I doubt it. Maybe. I also think what's interesting about this book that changes my perspective on Nate is that we don't really get a lot of Chuck Bass. And Mm -hmm. we spent a lot of time in the first episode in the first Gossip Girl episode talking about how problematic Chuck Bass is in 2020 and how upsetting it is to read him now. And I would totally recommend you go listen to that episode, listeners, if you're wondering what I'm talking about, because it is pretty shocking. But to sum that up, like he's just, he he represents everything that we're fighting against in the Me Too movement. He's, he really represents like everything that I think women in 2020 are fighting about on pretty much like every front. And it's upsetting to think about the fact that he was so glamorized in the books and in the TV show. And I think when we see Nate and Chuck orbiting the same universe, Nate seems less offensive and he is still like nicer than Chuck. But with Chuck out of the picture, I'm like, oh no, Nate really sucks too. Yeah. I mean, when your choices are between a guy who commits sexual assaults against a young teenager versus a shitty boyfriend... I mean, that's hardly a choice, but yeah, it's not great. It's not great. And so I think it just makes Nate look way worse. So I noticed that. I also was just shocked by how little we see Chuck in the book. And I, I do think it's because Chuck was such a huge player in the show that like Gossip Girl historians and and people who have read the books and watched the show over the years like aren't used to him not being around. But I kept looking for him as much as I didn't want to see him because I was so upset with what I saw and read of him in in the first book. It was weird that he just like didn't show up until the wedding. I don't remember this entirely, but I'm pretty sure that in the books he was by also, which adds like a very different dimension than the TV show. Oh, interesting. I don't know that I ever made it past the first few books in the series. So I I, mean, I wonder if that came in later. I don't remember that, but that's good to hear because the other thing that I wanted to call out is there's such a lack of diversity and representation in almost every way in this book. Blair's dad is gay, but as you mentioned, there's a heavy, heavy dose of homophobia in this book. Any conversation about her dad being gay is cloaked in like general criticism about his sexuality and the way that it's ruined Blair's life and the way that it's embarrassing to her. It's all kind of a joke. Um, and there's a lot of references to like fashion and makeup that he wears and, and like his appearance, which it's such a superficial depiction of the gay experience. And I, again, I don't think that that's something that we would see today. There's no sort of like genuine care taken in including characters who are queer. And there's like 
no racial diversity that we're aware of, which I definitely wanted to point out. In the show, um, I know a black actress played either Kati or Isabel. That's not anything that came from the book. No, no. And I, I had forgotten that Vanessa is white in the book. She's sort of like the outcast of the show. And so the fact that in the movie, they choose the movie, the TV show, they choose a biracial actress to play the one outcast character is really upsetting. The othering experience. And I wonder in this new imagining of Gossip Girl that seems to be in the works, I wonder how they'll address the diversity issue. I'd imagine that they have to. So yeah, I wanted to note that as well. Speaking of Vanessa and the, and the West Side crew, I think we should turn our attention a little bit to the Dan and Serena situation because that's another very complicated relationship that we see playing out in this book. When we left them in book one, they've just pulled Jenny out of this really unsafe situation with Chuck Bass. Um, and so Dan, of course, like thinks that they're together now. And when we when we find them again in this book, like he's like, oh yeah, like she's totally my girlfriend. And I loved, I loved that about Dan because I think it's so relatable to so many teens who like haven't ever been in a relationship before. Nobody really knows like what the actual entree is into a real relationship is like again maybe it's different now because of like social media but I just remember being in high school and I didn't date much again like I didn't have my first kiss till I was 16 but like in talking to my friends who dated I just remember so many conversations about like so are, are we dating now like can I say boyfriend can I say girlfriend like should I ask like what what do I have to do to find out and I just love that Dan made the leap he was like I think I think we're like we're just together that's a really good point because I I was quick to write him off as sort of like delusional and stalker-ish, but you're so right that there's no real smooth way to enter into an official couple when you're that age. Um, I remember a group of my friends, like four of us had boyfriends at the same time and our lunch tables in the cafeteria had eight seats. So we would all sit together, all eight of us on Tuesdays. And I think that's the only time that we hung out with our boyfriends, just <laughs> lunch on Tuesdays because none of us knew how to actually make a real relationship work yeah so the 20 minute lunch period was it but yeah so I just couldn't get behind Dan I found him so cringy and so difficult to read <laughs> just because his love of Serena doesn't read as genuine to me it just reads as she's a pretty girl so I'm obsessed with her and I'm going to write this vaguely suicidal poetry about her it was really alarming and he doesn't see her as a real person he just sees her as somebody that he can pin his like vaguely literary obsessions onto her and like try to impress her by talking about books that he probably hasn't read all the way through. True. And that he shouldn't expect her to read if she doesn't want to. The other thing that I that I thought was notable just in terms of like comparing twenty 20 to 2002 and also just this like unique high school bubble that these characters are living in with respect to Dan and Serena is that like they never see each other they don't go to the same school they don't live in the same neighborhood they don't really even have that many mutual friends where again in the world of the show there's so much overlap in their social circles and yeah they had phones but like the cell phone of 2002 was way different than the cell phone of 2020 and so I also think that the fact that they're just not in that much contact played into my idea that like Dan is totally guessing when it comes to like where he stands with Serena like he doesn't have enough context in their relationship because there's so little time for them to spend together so he has to sort of fill in the gaps and that was something that like really resonated with me especially as somebody who like didn't have a lot of relationships until I was older where I felt like I was always like okay like so I talked to him in math class and then he was nice to me in the hallway and then like 
we sort of like we're dancing together at the dance. So that might mean that like he likes me, but I don't know because I never see him. So I, I just thought that that was like very, it just reminded me of a time when like you didn't have access to somebody 24 seven, which is like what people have now. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think at one point Serena tries calling him and has to call his house because he doesn't have a cell phone, which I just blew my mind. I loved it. But yeah, it struck me that they don't really ever confront the fact that they have very different views of their relationship. She calls his poetry intense, and I think that's the closest they come to saying, hey, maybe, Dan, like, you like Serena more than Serena likes you. Yeah, and, and the conversation they have towards the end of the book where they just realize that they're fundamentally incompatible. Like, as an adult, I actually really appreciated that conversation. I think as a teen, I was probably heartbroken because I was rooting for them, especially, like, the TV version of them. But as an adult, I read this, and I was like, this actually seems like a very reasonable way to talk about a relationship. Like, They've sort of been on different pages throughout the whole book. Neither of them understands what the other is thinking. Dan, for a lot of the story, thinks that they're together. Serena has totally friend-zoned him. Like, she just is so happy when other people barge in on their hangs because she, like, doesn't want to be left alone with him. And to your point about the creepy poetry, like, I can't really blame her. But it is hard to watch them be on such different pages throughout the book. And then finally at the wedding... They have this conversation where it's just like, we're, we're never going to be the same person. And I'm sure that the story just c- continues to unfold up and down throughout the series. And I'm sure this isn't the end for them. But like, I think just the ability for like each of them to recognize, especially for Dan to recognize, like, I thought that you were one way. I thought that you were this like vision in my head. And actually, like, I don't think that you care about the same things that I care about. Like, we're not on the same energy level. We don't have the same mood about things. While I don't know that his assessment of her was entirely fair, I do appreciate that like they were able to have that conversation and be honest with each other and realize it. Because I do think that in high school, it's really easy to just sort of like hear what you want to hear from someone, see what you want to see in someone, and just like keep going. And that happened for a long time in this book. But at least at some point, they were able to pinpoint the fact that like it just wasn't going to work. Right. I would be interested to see how they ultimately redeem Dan as a romantic lead for Serena because she, like you said, she friends on him completely. I don't think she sees him as a sexual person. I don't think she is attracted to him in any way, or at least at this point in the book series. So I think it would be interesting to see how that turns around the future books. Yeah, they they leave it in a very weird spot here. Although, again, like I feel like they each have a chance to sort of own who they are, which is refreshing. There's a lot that's not refreshing about this book and that's very (laughs) disturbing but I I liked where they ended things at least and I think that that's a conversation that a lot of us need to learn to have I mean I've struggled to have those kinds of conversations with people throughout my life and it was very mature of them and so you know I have to give them a shout out for that the books maybe one redeeming scene (laughs) yes thank you for that book book two let's talk about the college search. So the college search is a big focus in this book. And one of our criticisms of book one was that we like never saw them studying or even really like caring about college. And while we still don't see them studying in this book, we at least see that they care about college. You know, for it to be realistic, I think they would have to be like actually doing homework. But we are at least like given some background on how hard or not hard all of these characters work in school. We hear more about the degree to which they care about their college experience. We hear about their aspirations or lack thereof. Did you relate to any of this, um, any of the stress or any of the uncertainty that they were feeling? Yeah. Like 
Blair, I was also very single-mindedly set on a school. And I remember being so nervous about the interview, about the whole application process, about, you know, what are my chances and all of that. I thought it was really revealing to see the four interviews, the college interviews with Blair, Dan, Serena, and Nate back to back and to see how each character handled that stress or if they felt stressed at all. Like Nate clearly doesn't feel stressed. So I thought that was really well done. And I thought it had a lot to say about privilege, especially in the wake of the college admissions scandal. Like with Nate, he clearly doesn't want to be there. He is talking to this person at Brown and he keeps telling her straight up, like, I'm not interested in Brown. I really don't care. Like, I just kind of want to go sail around the world with my dad and make some boats. And she keeps trying to say, oh, but you're such a great fit for Brown. We have a sailing team. And that, I mean, I'm sure that wasn't the intention that the author had with this, but that I think so perfectly captures how the college admission system is so rigged and so set up to cater to and privileged who already have a leg up. Right. And his satisfaction, he, he said multiple times, like, oh, like I could just see her trying to get me to come here. Like the more I, I mean, he, it's not a first person narrative, but the idea is that like he could see that the more he was cavalier about going to Brown, the more she was trying to convince him. And I think what the author was maybe trying to do was show that like when you are just relaxed and are yourself, things can sometimes go better than when you're like trying to be someone that you're not. And that's what we see, especially with Blair, I would say, even though I I think she really was being somewhat true to herself. She just is really trying to come out as this like very intense version of who she is for the interview. I think we're actually supposed to quote unquote learn that like, no, like Nate showed up and he really was authentic and he didn't like overthink it and that's cool and his interview was really the most successful of all of them which the more I think and talk about it I'm like that's so messed up because I think Blair was so prepared and Blair thought so much about how she was going to handle this interview I too was single-minded about college I was a stress case through all of high school so I totally resonated with her intensity about going to the kind of college she felt like she'd kind of like earned the right to go to and she ends up like drinking and eating junk food really late with her soon-to-be stepbrother the night before her interview and she oversleeps and just like really melts down during her interview and I understand that the author maybe felt like she had to have that experience to sort of have the contrast with the other characters But as a type A perfectionist, I also had this thought of like, why does the lesson here have to be that Blair needs to chill out? Like, why is that the thing that we're supposed to learn? Because I do think that throughout this book and even throughout the series, it's like Blair needs to chill. Like Serena is so cool because she doesn't overthink things. And all of these guys, of course, I mean, there's such a conversation to be had about the fact that like the guys, especially the more wealthy male characters in the book, just don't really seem to care about anything but Blair cares so much and she does have privilege but she still really cares and ultimately like she calls in her privilege in a really big way by having her dad donate like a whole garden to Yale so that she can hopefully get in but still like I felt like the prevailing message about Blair and her college search was like she just needs to chill like she's out of control and I don't like that that was what I took away from it I completely agree I am giving you such snaps for everything you just said Completely agree. And I wonder if I had heard you say that when I was applying to college and watching Gossip Girl every Monday night, if I would have had different thoughts. One thing that has always really bugged me about the series is the way that they hit Blair and Serena against each other. And in the books as well, as Blair tries but doesn't get what she wants and Serena just waltzes into everything and it's fine. And that's a really infuriating thing to read or watch as a kid, especially when you don't feel like you have that much agency because 
you are a kid. Like you can't just donate a vineyard and get into Yale and you can't just, I don't know, what does Serena do in the book? She rolls out of bed and she has like toothpaste hanging off of her face and she's like in pajamas and she's like, I look hot. Yeah. And that was infuriating to read. I kept being like, we get it. Like she always looks good. Understood. (laughs) But that also set people up to fail just because like you, nobody does that. Like if you, it's not a bad thing to try a little bit. Like trying is great. Passion is great. Yeah. You don't have to be apathetic to be cool. And I, I do think that if you look at this series as a whole, it's like the apathetic characters are cool. And, and like Dan tries hard, but he only really tries hard, I think, because he knows that he has to in order to go to college like at his core I think he's actually kind of an apathetic guy or he like wants to be he has this like brooding personality where he just like doesn't want to look like he's trying that hard like it's still better optically for him to seem chill and apathetic even though he knows he has to work harder than everybody else because he lacks some of their privilege again like we can we can talk for hours about like the veracity of the fact that like oh he lives on the upper west side and that means that he's so much poorer than everybody else like you and I have both you live in New York I lived in New York for years like we both know that he's fine but I do think that like even though he doesn't necessarily have the luxury to be fully apathetic like he's working really hard to seem like he's apathetic yeah especially with Serena and I think that just plays into this idea that if you play it cool and don't show the other person that you have any sort of emotions or feelings or wants or desires you somehow come out on top there's this really great essay Uh, that went viral a couple years ago called Against Chill by Alana Massey. And it's basically like the person who cares the least has all the power. And you so see that playing out with Dan and Serena. And she has the power because she doesn't even know that Dan cares so deeply for her until she finds out. And when she does, she is completely turned off by him. I think you see it with Blair and Nate too, because Nate doesn't care about Blair nearly as much as she cares about him. And she's spending all of her time worrying about their relationship. Also, let's talk about the fact that her vision, her romantic vision of them going to Yale together was that they were going to move in together during their college years and then get married. That's such a 2002 callback, I think, because I think especially in the context of New York City, like the kinds of families that these kids come from, I don't think that now like the romantic ideal would be like get engaged at 20. And I don't want to make generalizations, But I, again, from like my experience living in New York, even just like my experience in the world, I went to college with a lot of kids that came from schools like Constance Billiard. I did not go to school like Constance Billiard, but like I I know these kids and that was not the aim. Like the aim was not to like get married immediately after college. So I thought that that was sort of an interesting contrast with how I feel like things have changed in real life. To me, I didn't read that so much as this is what kids in that social circle do to me it felt very much like oh I'm 16 and in love so of course I'm gonna marry my boyfriends that I've known since kindergarten the one thing that really struck me about Blair's like fantasies for the future though was the scene where she and Nate are trying to have sex for the first time at the beginning of the book and she just has this like vision and she's like he's gonna come away with me and we're gonna stay at a bed and breakfast in New Haven and it's gonna be like our honeymoon and I think she's like saying this while putting on the kitten heels, which I think are really like stuck in my head somehow. But I was like, are you 35? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she just, she, I mean, I always say, I feel like I was born 30. I'm approaching 30 this year. And everybody's like, are you freaked out? I'm like, no, I've literally always been 30. But I think, I think Blair has always been 35. I think that's a great point. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't even want to stay in a bed and breakfast. No. Like, give me a little hotel. <laughs> 
<laughs> I am not a B&B girl. There's an episode of Gilmore Girls where they like make fun of bed and breakfasts and I connect with that so deeply. If you own a bed and breakfast, I'm thrilled for you. I personally have not had great experiences at bed and breakfasts. So the fact that that was Blair's romantic ideal also was like, hmm, for me, like that just... I don't think that that's what most 16-year-olds are dreaming of. That felt old to me. I do think it's realistic that somebody who is such a romantic, like Blair is, would think about like playing house with Nate. But I don't see that as like, oh, we're actually going to get married at 22 and live happily ever after. Yeah, that's probably what that, you're right. That's probably like more accurate. In my head, I was like, there's just no way. Like this would not be something that would be quote unquote normal in their social circle. I feel like at least now, like people are getting married older and older. So that just sort of confused me. It stumped me a little bit. I also wanted to mention briefly before we start to wrap up Blair's shoplifting incident, which I failed to mention earlier. And I think it's worth pointing out because it is so un-Blair-like. She's trying to find something like very sexual to give Nate as a gift. She doesn't want it to just be something sentimental. She wants it to be something that makes him realize how much he wants her, which is like such a specific aim and also points to her like tendency to romanticize everything and to just like import so much significance to every single thing that she does. Um, And she goes to Barney's and she sees these like beautiful cashmere pajama pants, which I, I would love to have a pair, please. But they're like, I think $250 and her credit card isn't working because her mom has merged banks with her fiance. And so I guess she has like a new credit card in the mail and Blair takes them. She just like puts them in her tote bag. And it was such an un Blair like moment What did you think of that plot point? To me, it felt like she is just so used to having control over everything. And she's just not used to something being unattainable for her. So she just kind of like didn't know what to do. And she snapped and she was like, I'm just going to take them. And it shows like just how badly she really cared about this gift to give to me to show that she wants him. She wants him to want her. I don't think she would have done that if it were for something else. But then again, she does want pretty much everything in her life so intensely. She wants Nate. She wants Yale. She wants to beat Serena. So I think that's just, that's just part of who she is. I don't think she would shoplift if it was like, I don't know, what does she not care about? Honestly, like food. Jenny and food. food. Jenny, Cyrus, her new stepdad. Yeah. I will say that it ends with sort of a lovely scene where we see some glimmer of a chance that maybe Blair and Serena can reconcile. They turn the like train wreck of a wedding night into like a girl's sleepover and that made me really happy because you could you could kind of see that they still care about each other I do feel like Serena looks really great in this moment because she remembers that this is all happening on Blair's birthday and she like drops the fact that Blair has been so hateful toward her and it's just like great how can I help so I liked the way that Serena was portrayed there and I thought that it was a really nice moment for them and it reminded me of something that my friends and I would do it's like okay everything sucks but we have this hotel room like let's order some food let's order some drinks because we're not 17. And like, let's just watch the movies. Blair turned me on to Breakfast at Tiffany's when I was a teenager. So I love that that was the movie that they're watching together. So I thought that was a really nice scene to end on. I thought that was perfect. I loved just like the camaraderie and friendship and fun in that scene. And I also definitely watched Breakfast at Tiffany's because of Blair. So thanks, Blair. <laughs> Blair. So on the whole, how do you feel like this reading experience compares to your memory of reading this book when you were a teen does it hold up does it disappoint you I'm sure it falls maybe somewhere in a gray area but I'd love to hear kind of where you land there I have to say I unfortunately was really disappointed reading the book just because first of all I just didn't really enjoy it it's not something I would pick up today but it made me upset for the things that I was reading without a second thought when I was a kid and not understanding the immense privilege, the immense homophobia, racism, body shaming, and all these other 
kinds of problems that are just so prevalent throughout the book. But I think it's good to take a refresher because now I have a better understanding of what I claim to love. It's nice to have a refresher, even if it's upsetting. Other than Gossip Girl, what have you been reading lately and liking more that you would recommend to our listeners? Yeah, so I just finished an older book, um, not quite as old as Gossip Girl, but I just read A Thousand Splendid Sons by Khalid Hosseini. And that's just a gorgeous book. It's like so, I mean, I feel like I learned 30 years of Afghan history in a day, just devouring it. And you don't even focus so much on what you're learning because the story is so moving. It's about two women and how their lives intersect. It's about motherhood and friendship. Oh, I just read um, 28 Summers by Ellen Hildebrand. I'm a huge fan of hers. And on the romance side, I read Party of Two by Jasmine Guillory. And I think this is my favorite of her books yet. She's phenomenal. And this is the best. Me too. I'm actually, I think I'm going to finish Party of Two tonight. I have like an hour left in it, according to my reader. I think it's my favorite of hers yet too. I'm really enjoying it. Yeah. I got to the end and I, like I had to put it down close to the end because I was like, I just have too many feelings. I need a break. (laughs) Yeah. I echo that recommendation, but I'll include links to all of your recommendations as well as Gossip Girl number two, You Know You Love Me in the show notes for this episode and Links to your books, Hannah, Head Over Heels, Playing With Matches, and Love at First Like. Listeners, if you have not read them, go check them out. They're all over Bookstagram, so I'm sure you've seen the covers, and it's time to go pick them up. So, Hannah, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today and for uh, just getting through a book that it it is hard to read and it it is a disappointment. So um, I appreciate you bearing with me and for just breaking all of it down with me. Thank you so much. This was so much fun. Have a good night. Bye. Bye. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast. <laughs>